0: All right, welcome to episode two of Consuming Jung. Um, this will be a, a pretty uh, much shorter uh, episode. We expect it to be shorter anyway uh, than the previous episode because the section we read is much shorter. Um, oh, and actually speaking of that, just to begin with that, the section we read is it's just one section and it's past and future in the unconscious, which for me is about it's like six or seven pages here. Um, yeah, uh, it was, it was, um, it, it didn't, it, for me, it didn't seem to go over any super new ground, but it kind of, uh, brought, I don't know. It's, It sort of demystified the unconscious. That was sort of the general theme that I got from it. How about you? What did you think of it?
1: Yeah, it's still, I can't help but think of that metaphor, which I really liked in the first chapter, where you're sort of bent towards this truth, like slowly. It's not a normal text where it makes an assertion and gives you the evidence. It sort of kind of wraps you around some kind of meeting that at one point you just find yourself accepting without realizing. And I felt that working on me a little bit. There were still some assertions that I said, wait, you need to prove that or explain that more. But then it kind of shifts to, well, here's what consciousness and unconsciousness are undeniably like. Everybody knows that, you know, this and this is true. And like, yeah, that is true. Uh, You know, and so I'm like, oh, wait, in me recognizing that's true, I'm being led somewhere. And I like, but the first assertion isn't true yet. Mm. Uh, Yeah, there's something about this book that's like very psychological. I guess you would expect that from reading a psychology book, but it's definitely quite different from what my normal reading is. Yeah.
0: So, and just to make sure I understand you're talking about that that metaphor that the the guy that wrote the foreword, that metaphor that he was saying, it's like a sparrow circling that pine tree or whatever, that whole idea. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's definitely a different way of reading um, that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I was prepared for it in the foreword, actually. Um, often I'll read forewords or like introductions in books written by someone who's not the author. And I kind of feel like, I just need to get through it. It's kind of annoying, but that's a, I guess that's a rare case where I feel grateful for some kind of preparation. Um, Cause yeah, then it lets me relax and just keep reading even though uh, yeah, there's no strict assertions or I might, I don't know, nitpick about the strict truth of some statement, but I just keep reading and then I, I find myself convinced. Um, mm. It also strikes me as a type of writing that would, it would be hard to get away with um, in today's culture somehow.
1: Huh. Interesting. Yeah, well, it feels very fresh to me, but I don't know if I'm representative of today's culture, although I think I am part of some kind of counter movement that has no name, or I imagine mm-hmm. myself to be part of one. Don't we all? But, <laughs> don't we all? Well, why don't we get into the meat of it a little bit? I There's one sentence that came in really early, and I'd like to just read it because I think it's the most important sentence in this chapter. Uh, and it goes like this. <clears throat> The two fundamental points in dealing with dreams are these. First, the dream should be treated as a fact about which one must make no previous assumptions, except that it somehow makes sense. And second, the dream is a specific expression of the unconscious, Mm. end quote. And uh, there's something there that it. I think we'll strike, people will hear that and sort of disagree with it immediately. Maybe some people will agree, but I think the tendency when you hear an assertion is to sort of see what you don't agree about in it. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of people treat their dreams as these kind of curious absurdities. They're strange, and they almost are reluctant to put any meaning on them because sometimes the meaning is quite... It ha- maybe has negative implications about themselves or about what they're doing or what other people are doing around them. Uh, or at least that's like a sort of easy jump to make even though clearly you might you might need some kind of sophistication to unpack these things properly Um, but he's just asserting it as a fact like hey this is it Uh, it's truth and it's your dreams are truth they're saying something that's true no doubt about it and not only that it's your unconscious actively communicating with you Mm, and uh, a specific expression of the unconscious yeah and I, it still—that's one of the things where he—he he makes an assertion, and then he doesn't really describe it. But then he goes on to say other things that I think are true. But there, I'm still kind of lost. It's a very strong point to make.
0: Yeah, I—I I actually noted that well, that was my first note. Of course, it's right in the first paragraph here. But um, I noted there, and I—I I said it was hard to swallow the—the um, the idea that a dream should be treated as a fact, and—and um, and, uh, I guess what what makes it sort of easy to accept anyway even though i don't necessarily it's like i'm not convinced you know not convinced in sort of a scientific or objective way that that's true Um, but what i take from that and what I, i guess what i'm comfortable taking from that is the it's a way of approaching a dream you approach a dream with the assumption that it's a fact not necessarily that it uh maybe it's a different kind of fact like it's not a fact about reality necessarily like you know you wouldn't be able to tell the future from it or whatever and but it's it's like a fact about your subconscious uh, or almost a piece of evidence that's how it feels to me and that's how i feel comfortable with uh, this idea you treat the dream as if it is not just random meaninglessness but it's 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 a fact um, that you can
1: then interpret and use somehow Sure. Yeah, I don't think that it doesn't get to a satisfying point by the end of this chapter. So we read that assertion. It doesn't. I never got to a point where that seemed logical. But they wrote they, he does get into very interesting ideas about. And what I found the most interesting thing about this chapter is that the unconscious is is a sort of intelligence that is different from our own as i understand it It can communicate in these these symbols and through dreams and in in other ways it asserts itself in other ways in active life but the idea that it almost seems like its own entity but it's us it's made out of the same cells as our conscious but consciousness uh, but it's completely separate and you one can't help but personify it in some way like that it has an experience to be my unconscious it's just that i'm not happy or at least i can't help but think in those terms mm-hmm. this duality of myself and uh, i really hope that's expressed on more because that's the thing that left me the most like reeling the most and the most curious and like wait, when does that get resolved
0: yeah it's it's interesting too how on one hand i feel like he he as i said earlier he demystified the unconscious he kind of and in fact, most of this chapter, I would say, is sort of explaining or illustrating how there's nothing really magical about it on one hand, because he says like, you know, he has the example a bit later about um, another professor he knows that was walking with a student and then suddenly he felt himself flooded by all these memories of his childhood and he didn't know why. And they walked back and they found that um, they, they walked past what was like a farm or some kind of factory or mm-hmm. something, but it... When he walked back, he realized it was the smell of the grease um, that, re- that reminded him of his childhood because his childhood was spent around a similar smelling place. So, uh, and you know, in that example, it the unconscious there is what registered the smell and triggered the memories, all without his conscious attention. And he found himself consciously inundated by these memories. And so it's just one of a few examples that he has here of the unconscious uh, almost pushing its way into the conscious uh, and, and casting it as a, an actor, you know, that, that pushes things forward into the conscious. It's not some passive um, memory bank. Uh, so, that, uh, yeah, on one hand, he demystifies it like that in a way I really appreciate. And I think it'll make reading this thing a lot uh, more easy, or it'll be easier to swallow a lot of this because he has grounded it so firmly in that, um, yeah, that demystified nature at the same time though he, he also talks about how it is sort of this intelligence uh that as you say it kind of acts on its own and it's it, yeah we, you can almost personify it with the way he's talking about it um so yeah that's an interesting thing going on in this chapter he he does both of those things at once he he, he makes it seem quite powerful i suppose but not mysterious necessarily Although, uh, mysterious as well, of course, because it's giving you all these mysterious symbols. But I guess he makes it, I don't know, I I think I'm I'm rambling a bit, but that's just an interesting, um, I don't know, tension or something in this chapter, although it didn't feel like a tension while I read it.
1: Yeah, I can't, I've noticed, I said this several times in the previous podcast, but there's something deranging about reading all this, and I think that's just going to be true of any psychology, is you're sort of talking about, yourself and all of humanity and this specific example like you can't help but think of prior events or at least I can't help but think of prior events and especially smell it it'd be very disconcerting so this guy yeah this professor is having a conversation with a student he has these very odd memories these adolescent memories and notions that he had as an adolescent and but then he can't help but think that it's coming from the conversation he's having and I think most of us would feel the same like you're having conversation this conversation must be triggering it it's almost kind of surprising. It's probably more likely that people have that sort of feeling, that uncanny feeling, why are these thoughts bubbling up and couldn't possibly probably most of the time not realize that it is because of a smell. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of confusion persists when we think about our dreams as well. You sort of you're tempted to project the dreams onto something kind of rational. You, it's what would be much harder to make connection. Oh, I smell grease, and that reminds me of my childhood, and I had these thoughts in my childhood. That's a lot more difficult, even though it's more true. It's a Trojan horse starts to like sort of get you to believe this idea. I think that maybe is where that metaphor of the bird and the tree kind of comes in. Is like he leads you down that line of thinking without making it explicitly clear, or maybe it's supposed to be pretty obvious. But there's that sort of thinking in action, or that sort of writing in action.
0: Yeah, I, I like the, the, the metaphor that you just made, or and the, I, I, that didn't occur to me so clearly when I read it, but the idea of the, the connection you made between sort of smelling the engine grease would be an unconscious trigger and then you're, you're finding yourself um, consciously thinking something and then connecting, connecting that to a dream where you, in both cases you could be unaware of the cue um and be experiencing something and then you might sort of rationally explain it by some other means and so with dreams you might say well that's just i don't know you you wouldn't look for symbolism maybe you'd just say well i was stressed or uh, i don't know yeah you'd look for some kind of thin explanation um when when really that could be the cause of that could be quite a bit more mysterious so it's possible then you could have a dream and it might not make any sense at first but the only way you could really start to discover the true cause is to assume that there is a deeper cause there uh, some unconscious cause so that's interesting
1: yeah well he goes on to to talking about dreams and how normal they are so i think you know this is still in the beginning of the chapter and I think he sort of expects the reader to still be resistant to his ideas. And he talks about, well, dreams are pretty normal. Um, I was just talking to someone that was telling me that we dream every night, which I didn't realize. Um, The the claim is that every time you have that REM, that rapid eye movement sleep, you must be dreaming. And you just don't remember it. So when you wake up with no memory, you you most likely were dreaming if you hit that stage of sleep. Um, but you just don't remember. And, and so dreams are, are quite common. I, I, I'm sort of skeptical of that science. It seems true enough, but I don't, haven't done the necessary work to prove because I'm sort of, what's the difference between not remembering and and having the dream, at least for your conscious experience. Certainly at that point, maybe it seems like the unconscious is not really communicating anything if you don't remember it, but I've that's kind of slippery ground but he just he talks about how normal dreams are so he sort of tries to establish what dreams certainly seems normal and he says well if they're normal then they must be either causal they have a rational cause or they're purposive they have some purpose and again that's one of these assertions that that it sort of like seems more true than the first or easier to believe um but but, but I mean what do you think of that because dreams are normal um, they must have a rational cause or be have some purpose, which I have some thoughts about that. But I mean, did that, when you read that, did that strike you as true? Or is that one of those things like, I'm not ready to believe this quite yet?
0: Yeah, well, it definitely, um, caught my interest. I remember reading that line and it stood out to me. Um, I kind of just, re- I think when I read through it the first time, I just kind of moved on, but it did stick with me. And it's an interesting. Um, I don't know, something about it feels right. So if if something's normal, it must have a rational cause or it must be, uh, it it itself must have a purpose, you know, that it's going to go cause something else or it's designed to cause something else. Um, It it reminds me of, uh, in the the previous episode, um, I, I think I mentioned the idea that I had where it's like if dreams are if dreams are completely random that would actually require more of an explanation to, to say that these dreams are happening but they're completely without a cause and also without a purpose that would that would seem to me more bizarre actually than than the um, the claim that Jung is making here that well if they're happening and they're normal and everyone has them then then there must be a cause or a purpose to them that feels right i it, it's it's something that if i was um, I don't know, if I wanted to be more rigorous, maybe I would go and try to prove or disprove or think harder about, but I, I guess I'm satisfied with how true it feels. I guess that's the, that and that's why I didn't really, it stuck with me, but I didn't see it as a problem to solve as I read, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that seems true what you're saying. I, when I think about it, you know, it's, I, I, I would have to think a little bit more about whether it is harder to believe that they're purely random hmm. or that they have some meaning. Um, but to me, uh, another dichotomy there is why have dreams at all? And I think that it it if you were to think about what sleep would be like, a sort of recharging of the brain, I, I've read multiple descriptions of sleep and I never quite understand what I'm reading. It just seems so mysterious about what's going on uh, where there's you know, seemingly it's still a lot of brain activity. But why these hallucinations? Why would there be hallucinations of something? Kind of like really, really strange ones, as if they took some level of creativity, right? Some mm. some metabolic cost, some energy is being spent that, you know, if it was saved might be useful for another encounter or another purpose. So some, the body is using energy to display these images when it seems like it would be more restful to display no images at all, Mm. even though like, again, I'm just trying to really make clear, I have not even a tenuous understanding of why we sleep, but my intuition would be that we wouldn't dream if I had to choose being completely ignorant of what happens when one sleeps. Right. Right.
0: So, and you're saying, so that would lead you to then suspect there must be some kind of cause
1: or purpose to them exactly yeah i'm willing to believe that more because just existing at all isn't free in Mm -hmm. my opinion so that one i it was it was uh, like okay that seems like it's more true than not true certainly yeah well he goes on he, he talks about neuroticism i don't know if it's a very clean drum uh jump but he talks about neurotic people display Behaviors that are unconscious, and that that started. This is like when he started talking about that. I'm like, okay, well, this is definitely true. Yeah. Uh, I know, especially I, I couldn't help but think about this. One of my most uh, sig- not significant, but most memorable memories is of me in high school, and in sophomore, I was in a chemistry class, and I was tapping on my desk with a pen, which is quite annoying. It certainly can annoy me these days when someone does that and I've sort of broken the habit as, as far as I, I think I've broken the habit unless it's unconscious but at, at that time I was probably doing it quite frequently just sort of nervous tapping and at one point I was tapping quite loudly and not realizing at all just not knowing at all or seemingly not knowing but someone called me out someone interrupted the teacher as she was teaching and said hey Tim could you I can't hear what she's saying or could you stop And I flared right up. I got so embarrassed. I was quite shy in those days. But as soon as that happened, I knew exactly how loud I was tapping. Like, I knew immediately that what I was doing was irritating and wrong. But up it's like I had a clear memory of the whole past experience of how loud I was tapping and how annoying it would be. Hmm. But up until the moment it was brought to my conscious attention, it was completely just felt so oblivious i certainly wasn't intentionally tapping there was no purpose for me to tap my pen mm. uh and so it's 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 quite easy to start accepting what he says later on about neuroticism and how the unconscious um behavior asserts itself i think probably i was getting really into the lesson and so i um my tapping was somehow related to that it's hard to say of course but mm. this struck me as as um, quite relatable what he gets into next yeah yeah the, the neuroticism
0: is is um yeah pretty convincing to me as well and and I feel like I've have witnessed this a bunch with people I don't have any specific examples but people will start behaving differently in a way that seems
1: unconscious but also seems to somehow reflect what's going on Mm like a tension in the room. I, I find this very often with body language where I tune into my body language and realize I want it to be different, but I'm sort of, maybe my shoulders are forward because I'm feeling stressed out or unconfident and I put them back so, so as to appear more confident and then I do feel more confident. That's my what my I want my conscious expression to be. Or a, a very common one for me is I look at people's feet. I don't know if you're familiar with this um, idea, but you know if you're in a group of people and they... The, the, way, the way they point their feet is who they're accepting into the group. So if they're pointing them, if there's three people and two people are just kind of pointing their feet at each other, like very straight, that means they aren't accepting this third person. Whereas if they're more angled, sort of one foot points at one person, the other foot points at another person, then they're sort of accepting everyone there. Hmm. And I've noticed that I've been in groups where kind of an annoying person comes up and no one will turn their feet towards them. Right. And uh, it's unconscious, but it's a, it's a... It's a significant communication about what the social hierarchy is there right yeah i wonder i mean there's a lot of that sort of knowledge about these
0: unconscious social cues you can pick up and learn um i wonder if any of that was floating around in uh in Jung's time which brings me to another thought i wanted to bring up here which is i think it feels like when i read this he's writing to convince me of well the reader of things that some of the things he's trying to convince, I feel like, have already been absorbed by the culture. So I think it, it seems like part of the chapter here, part of the purpose, is just trying to make the case for the existence of the unconscious, which I suspect I'd have to go really, I mean, maybe I should go verify this, but it, I suspect that when he wrote this, it was a, it was far less um, generally accepted. hes You know, he's Freud's contemporary, and Freud, of course, popularized the unconscious, and And in their day, they were still trying to sell that idea itself to people, Um, as he mentions here. Like he says something here in the chapter about how the unconscious sort of acting out is clear in psychiatric patients and people who have something wrong with them. But everybody has this unconscious. Um, And so, yeah, I, I think to some degree, he's trying to sell this idea that we've already absorbed the idea of the unconscious. But then still, a lot of it seems quite new to me. I guess the importance he puts on the unconscious and, um, and how, how much of a force it is, how, how significant it is.
1: That, that's very interesting. Yeah. It's hard to imagine the unconscious not being part of like the cultural awareness. Cause it seems like we know that it exists, but we may just have the luxury of, of having our culture program us to have certain ideas that were not at all obvious. Um, like these memes about psychology, yeah, that that's uh there is some historical uh there's a historical gap between when this book was written and and where we're reading it now in in 2020. Right. And he wrote it in the 80 like I, said, I think it was
0: the 80s. Um okay. and but of course he's old he's super old by that point. And I think that I mean when you watch that interview with him that we mentioned I think in one of the earlier episodes you can tell he's still clearly intelligent, um, you know, he's not losing his mind. But at the same time, I think that as you get older, you kind of, you stop accepting new ideas so much. And so not only is this book kind of old, but he might be writing from a position that the position itself is a bit old. You know, he might still see the world as, as in need of convincing that there is this, this unconscious mm-hmm. where maybe, maybe it has been convinced to some degree. So that could also be another way it's, it's dated.
1: Someone pointed out to me, I wonder how long this has been going on, but some of the foremost intellectuals right now, regardless of whether you agree with some of the things they say, like they're certainly getting the most attention, are Steven Pinker and Jordan Peterson. And they're both psychologists. Hmm. And I think there may be another person, maybe Paul Bloom, although less so. But it seems like psychologists have really cornered the sort of leading you know, intellectual edge hmm. uh, in a way that may always be the case. Well, no, that can't. Be. I think sometimes scientists, right, have dominated or, or poets like Shakespeare dominated in his time and he was writing great literature. Uh, so it's not always the case, but it seems like it's kind of easy to understand because they take everything that's going around in our culture and like really everywhere and Kind of explaining why it matters to people or what, how people interact with these ideas, which is of course salient to everybody how they're going to interact with with the world as they find it. Um, it that, but maybe that was not the the case then, but it's certainly the case now. Yeah, yeah. Of course, Jordan Peterson
0: seems quite huge, and Stephen Pinker too um, today. I, I almost wonder if part of the shift is is that the these psychologists are making more of an effort and it's easier to communicate with the masses um stephen pinker is an amazing writer of course uh and then um jordan peterson has also written two books the first one which is very difficult to read actually but the the second one has got very popular um and so like you know freud and jung they 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 had a lot of influence but they were really only influencing other experts other professors and then uh you know we're reading jung today not really because our friends told us about it, but because we've heard these other idols like Jordan Peterson talk about Jung. Um, mm. So maybe that's maybe that's part of the shift that happened. Is uh, I I I wouldn't be. I mean, it seems right that maybe in Jung's time, Jung's and Freud's time, when you write, there's just less of a general public to write to, uh, less of a general educated public to write to. Um, and then of course the publishing options are extremely limited compared to what we have today. You can write an ebook today and publish it virtually for free. And, and not only that, but you can have more of a guarantee that it'll, it, it can get to, you know, the far corners of the, of the world without some dedicated publishing campaign necessarily being in place. So, and then there's YouTube, of course. I mean, a lot of Jordan Peterson's, um, popularity comes from just YouTube and, uh, and, and social media in some sense. So I wonder, I mean, that must be part of it. I don't, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if you could say it's a cause for why we're hearing more from psychologists, but but I think it's, it seems related somehow.
1: Hmm. Well, it, it now I feel like we're really, we're speculating. It's always kind of hard to define your time. And I, I feel like I'm often more wrong than I'm right when I try to like, what's the zeitgeist? Like mm-hmm. we're all kind of, like really into politics and that's bad or uh, whatever. Uh, so I'm, I'm tempted to steer away from this topic, although mm. I do find it really interesting. Um, but let's see. So where are we? He's he's talking about neuroticism. He's talking about, oh, oh this is what I want to say, um, that there seems to be more unconscious behavior. This is another one of the things that just is probably pretty easy to accept. It's hard to imagine denying this, but that you have more unconscious behavior than you have conscious behavior. He kind of talks about the limits of consciousness, where if you're hearing this very low pitch sound, you can kind of tune in and tune out to it. You can sort of not realize it's there, but you can always tune in like, oh, yeah, there's that sound. But because it's so quiet, it can sort of be on the fringe of consciousness. Just sort of to demonstrate that there is a limit to what you can really absorb. I mean, consciousness seems quite rich, especially vision. You see the entire room on your nose right 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 in the middle of your vision you have this very rich experience you're hearing things and you're feeling things and you're thinking things but still even with all that the unconscious experience must be far far greater like you might be having feelings you don't realize you're having you might have sensations in your body that you're ignoring or there are sounds in the background that are obli- you're oblivious to mm. and uh it couldn't be any other way really because how much there is to process and what we sort of know about how easy it is to miss what's right in front of us right yeah it's
0: it's, it's a pretty convincing argument by necessity the, the unconscious must be quite vast because there's just so much information coming in um, and we have to narrow our consciousness to to get anything done he says something like you know and it's And I think maybe this is part of, again, like selling the idea of the unconscious to the masses. He says, it is, in fact, normal and necessary for us to forget in this fashion in order to make room in our conscious minds for new impressions and ideas. If this did not happen, everything we experience would remain above the threshold of consciousness and our minds would become impossibly cluttered. Um, Oh, but then he also says, this phenomenon is so widely recognized today that most people who know anything about psychology take it for granted. So I guess it's sort of like he's saying uh, that it's accepted, although he does have the um, proviso that um, most people who know anything about psychology take it
1: for granted. You know, I I just realized this. I didn't realize at the time, but they're actually, and I don't think Yoon could have known about this because it's quite a recent development, but we have found very rare individuals who seem to remember everything. You ask, hey, what was Tuesday or no, no, what was January 17th of 2014? They'll say, oh, it was a Tuesday. I woke up. I listened to this music. I wore this outfit. Like, they can remember every single detail. And I remember just watching YouTube videos, amazed at that. And one person said, it's awful. It's, it's, it's terrible. I hate it. I, I can't get all that. So they've described the clutter that Jung says. Hmm. We sort of take for granted that, of course, it would be the case. And the other person says, no, I can remember whatever I want to remember. It's great. that There's no sort of, like, limitation on my present moment is what I think they're trying to say because everything else is in the way. And so I believe Jung is is uh, wrong. Although, to be fair, there's exceptions to virtually any argument. So because, even though there's an example of that not being the case, like in general, it's still true. It's more true to say that even though there are exceptions. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like I've sort
0: of gone through all the thoughts I had for the text. Actually, no, There's there's one more thing I wanted to bring up so he makes the point near the end that uh, that not only can our unconscious take in all this information but it can actually process it in some way and actually deliver you know halfway developed ideas into the consciousness and then he he shares a few sort of historical examples about uh, this mathematician Punker, Ponca, I don't know how to say his name Poincare something like that um, but they they uh he says they owe important scientific discoveries, uh, to sudden pictorial revelations from the unconscious and, uh, and Descartes as well has a similar story mm-hmm. about, um, in which he saw in a flash, the order of all sciences. Um, and I'm curious because I don't really feel like that. I, I've certainly never had the experience of having a fully formed insight flash to me. I, but on the other hand, I guess I have felt like I've these, these sort of half formed concepts have occurred to me and then I'll go think about them and they seem somehow rich or valuable. Um, So I'm not sure if I can say I have or haven't experienced what he's describing there. Um, And how do you feel about that? What do you, that phenomenon?
1: Yeah, I, I did identify with that. So the way he's talking about it is like, this is the contribution, like that sort of, that boring of from the unconscious into the conscious is uh, what we would call genius, like a, a spark of genius, because it sort mm. of just comes fully fleshed out. It's the insight, uh, eureka moment. And I don't know. I don't know if I've had many of those. I think I've had a few where at least an idea crystallizes in my head. Um, I've had the experience of. Uh, I can't help but thinking. I don't know if this is exactly what Jung is getting at, but. Sometimes I'm trying to write something, and I just sit there and look at a screen, and I don't write anything, and it, it just feels almost like that writer's block. And sometimes it's effortless, and I write the best things I've ever written. Just, it, I don't even feel like I'm consciously trying to get somewhere. It's like, just like I'm talking now, and I don't know how the sentence will end. I'm not really planning it ahead. I have some intuition, uh, but to an even greater degree with writing, which is sort of a, a way more... Uh, sophisticated or intentional or or thoughtful way of of thinking than talking is Mm. Um, but it sort of flows anyway so there's not the sort of pause and okay what's next but just sort of the words come and it just feels like they're coming from not a directly conscious place so I I identified it with it in that way I I was talking though um, with someone about that sort of idea and they were saying well usually or probably always when you're we're talking about a genius level contribution that person has been steeped in this problem so they've been consciously working on it many for probably for many days right so you could think of albert einstein he probably didn't just think up the theory of relativity he must have been thinking about that problem for a really long long time and then many many nights right it, it, it i don't know if that was like that for him or how he would describe it but i, I kind of imagine it must have just one day came because it's sort of it's such a profound idea that I sort of imagine that it came in that sort of unconscious way if to Mm. use that uh, sort of language. Right. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. The the idea that the unconscious has an intelligence like that, uh, that is separate from your own, but can be thrust into your conscious experience, whether through, through um, dreams or through just when you're waking, you'll just have that, That uh, that idea thrust onto you, maybe from a smell, maybe for who knows what the trigger is. But the idea is like finally ready for you to to have it. Yeah, yeah. And we'll have to read more. I bet. I bet we'll. um,
0: I bet this will be fleshed out. But my impression now at this point is that your unconscious is. It seems like it's something in between an intelligence and a and a and and just a memory bank where, you know, Mm -hmm. it absorbs these impressions whether from your conscious thought or from the outside world and they don't just get stored uh you know in some linear mechanical fashion uh fashion they they're kind of aligned as they get stored and then and then as you go forward throughout your day there seems like there's some additional processing being done uh and then and then yeah and then eventually it'll sort of pop back into your consciousness and it's not that the files were stored and then just randomly were retrieved they're actually synthesized somehow uh so that's an interesting interesting thought and i wonder you said something about um there's an urge to personify it when we're talking about it being having some kind of intelligence um I would guess my my hunch would be that there's not really an experience of what it's like to be an unconscious. That would be my guess. And that it's a little bit more, it's not self-aware in that way. And yet at the same time, it seems clear there is some kind of intelligence to it um, that you can't uh, discount um, and that you can't just say like, oh, well, I'm going to be intelligent like the unconscious. Like it's a, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say like, it seems hard to believe that the unconscious would have some the same kind of conscious intelligence as the conscious. That sounds so circular, but um, but also it seems likely that there is a there is a power to the unconscious that uh, that the consciousness wouldn't be able to grasp.
1: Hmm. I think that's going to be one of the most interesting uh, points here, or at least it's very personally interesting. Whether my unconscious experience has its own consciousness. Um, whether I share some level of consciousness, whether it like comes into, like it's clearly communicating. I, uh, I don't think I have a satisfying place. I, I'm, I'm sort of willing to believe. I, for me, it's not so strange to believe that my unconsciousness, whatever it is, is conscious, but that it just can't use my language processing to speak or it can't vocalize thoughts other mm. than through the conscious, right. which I can then say, oh, this is like my dream that I had. That seems possible to me, and of course, (laughs) impossible at the same time. But I I have the sense that we know so little about consciousness that we will be uh, incredibly surprised at how it ends up, uh, how it that really ends up working. I don't think it's something that we are uh, close to having a strong intuition for. I think it'll be on the level of the theory of relativity, Mm. if not greater. I mean, this is one of the fundamental mysteries of why. Is it something to be the notch? Like we could have done all this. We could have built civilization without being conscious and just kind of going through like um, reacting to stimuli and whatnot and, and having intelligence, but not being conscious of it. That seems possible to me. And yet we have this, We there's something that it's like to be us. We can feel pain. We can we can feel yeah. joy. It's it's quite mysterious. And, and you know, when you dig into the subject, there's no reason to think that there's not the more types of consciousness than just the human experience certainly there's something that it's like to be a bat or a dog or i think most people would not resist that sort of idea mm-hmm. um i think that's the just barely scratching the surface of what might be having a conscious experience all right okay well shall we end it there then um well <laughs> we said we're going to be sure i i bet we're going to go longer than ever on this because <laughs> Um, if that's all right with you. I I just wanted to mention one other thing from the note, or from my notes, which is uh, just this line that I liked that Jung quoted Nietzsche, and the thing that he quoted was, uh, as Nietzsche remarked, where pride is insistent enough, memory prefers to give way. And I couldn't help but think of so many squabbles that I've had where both people were in the same situation and they remember it in different ways that are more advantageous to them in the way that they subsequently acted. I just remember... Plenty of roommate squabbles were like everyone was there and saw the same thing, and yet had completely different memories that sort of made them, you know, the 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 righteous moral actor, and the other person this sort of like, you know, douchebag for how they're behaving now, right. and vice versa. I just, I really like that quote because it's uh it's a little hits a little close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you want to react to that at all but the other thing that we haven't done that I think is is worthwhile doing is is talk about uh, dreams that we've had as uh oh yeah but maybe I can grab my notebook real quick if you don't mind it should be just a few seconds yeah yes okay do that for sure how does that feel to you do you have a dream that you want to share I actually I
0: don't i I was hoping to have dream that i could share um and actually i think i it's funny i think i did have a dream that felt symbolic but when i woke up i was like kind of thinking about it and then i only remember the last part which which isn't very interesting um Mm. and i i feel like it's funny I, i think i did have a dream that felt symbolic but i don't remember it so it's a bit of a cool story, bro. Unfortunately, I have nothing to bring here. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <It's> great audio. <laughs> um, well, I, I had three dreams, and only one of them I wrote down. The other two I can barely remember. Even though they were quite vivid, I just didn't quite think to write them down. Sometimes I don't even know that I want to be doing that. It's, it's mm-hmm. odd. But, you know, of course, you're, you're sort of half awake. You're not quite thinking clearly, and it's pretty easy to forget what seems so um, passionate, really. Well, but I did write one down and I'm, I'm kind of nervous to read it because it's, it's, I have tried to absorb it. I don't know how, and it really is, is quite emotional, but it's, yeah, I'm disconnected from it. You know, I'm sort of the witness of the dream. Usually I'll have feelings, but they're like very different from what you would rationally expect the feelings to be. Mm. And there's so many things that, you know, happen, but have no, they don't make any sense, but they just happen. Um, but so I'm going to assume it's true yeah. and I'm going to assume it's my unconscious trying to experience, but why don't I just read it here and, sure. and, uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So again, I, I wrote this down. So I'll just read what I wrote. I am a husband. I see a call coming in from my wife. I answer. She tells me she's going into labor. I need to get to the hospital. I start rushing. I am in some sort of underground parking area. Cars are moving by me. I see a police officer and flag him down. I explain that I need to get to the hospital. He agrees to help. Somehow I learn or intuitively know that his shift is about to end and that I am inconveniencing him. But I rush to grab a scooter, the kind that you use one leg to push forward. The officer also has such a scooter, but his has lights and a siren. We disappear into traffic. Suddenly I am in an airport. The police officer is talking to an airline agent while I fiddle with a machine where I'm scanning my passport. I'm taking a long time. I seem unable to enter basic information. This scares me. Finally, I finish and we move through. I shift into another view where we are approaching the hospital in the night. I ask the officer why we had to fly to get to the hospital. I suddenly realize my wife may not be in this particular hospital. He kindly reassures me that this is the largest hospital in the region, and that is the only one she could be at. I'm still surprised at why I had just taken a flight when we come up to a bog. We have to cross it to get to the hospital. The officer goes first. There are walkways, but they are extremely steep, so steep that if you walked on them you would clearly slip, fall, and slide into the bog. The officer went out onto the walkway. He jumped a surprising distance to land on a more level platform and was quickly on the other side. My turn. I knew I would not be able to jump, like he did. So I lowered myself to the first steep walkway and slid down it. I caught onto railing to stop me from falling into the bog. Gradually, through cautious sliding descents, I also made it to the other side. Some discontinuity occurred. I shifted to being near the officer, listening to a conversation he was having. He was talking to an older black woman. I knew what she looked like, but she was not there. Then the officer was talking to the woman's son. From the way they talked, it was clear that the officer had helped them enormously, such that they regularly called him as a friend just to make casual conversation. I was overcome with emotion at the thought of how helpful the officer was to me and to these people. As I tear up, the officer turns to look at me, and the dream ends. Hmm. So that's the whole thing. It's like my so I somehow a husband. I have a wife who's going into labor. I I hop so I'm underground in a parking lot. I. Go into traffic on little scooters where you're pushing, and the officer also has a scooter, and his is clearly <laughs> outfitted. We we go to an airport, we fly um, to a hospital, and then I'm confused by that. And then there's a bog, and we cross it. And this kind of, he does it adventurously, I do it very cautiously. And then the part that really is strange to me is then I'm on the other side of the bog. I should be rushing to the hospital where which is on the other side of it, but instead I'm like listening to a conversation that's very casual kind of overcome at how nice this officer was, who was like at the end of a shift, who like helps people so often, like that seemed more impactful than than the birth of one of my children. It just, yeah, I don't, I certainly don't know what to make of it. Well, can uh, I, one question that comes to me is uh, when,
0: near the end of the dream where you're listening to the officer, in the dream, do you have any awareness anymore of, of like the sort of the narrative of, your your wife being in labor or is that really not part of the dream anymore
1: no i i like knew that the hospital was on the other side of the bog but once i'm on the other side i don't see the hospital i'm not thinking about that at all i'm just sort of witnessing a conversation that Mm. yeah that completely disappears in importance Hmm. it's sort of in my making moment the kind of the first thought was wait why didn't i go to my you know it's like kind of then just sort of shifts into this i'm no longer sitting next to a bog, i'm in my bed kind of waking up and thinking wait what about my you know Mm. yeah um it's interesting that the uh, the officer seemed to be
0: he, he was there for so much of the dream that my first impression would be would be to like well what is what does he symbolize
1: i have to think of authority i i but that, that just seems clear. I, I haven't really had much meaningful interactions with police officers mm. that I can remember. I, I sort of have the sense that like, I like that they're there. They can use force on my behalf as a citizen, but I also sort of feel nervous around them. Like I'm breaking some law I don't even know I'm breaking, right? Right. and I'm going to get fined for it, you know? Uh, yeah. And I, I feel, I, I think I have some resistance to even, like I'm sort of, I'm like, okay, with reading it. But I worry that in analyzing it, it will get into some kind of thing that that is just too personal. You know, I wonder if one day this this podcast will fall into the lap of some learned psychologist. He's like, oh, yeah, he's uh, going through this right now and he needs to do this to make it better. Or, or he'll know something very deep about me that I don't know about myself because of the dream that I just read hmm. that, you know, he with his psychology can, can piece together better than I can. Yeah. Well, I think to some
0: degree, uh, it seems like I don't, I think I read this in the text we're reading or it was, or it was some writing about the book that I briefly read. But there's this idea that the dreams can only be deeply interpreted by the individual, like you need them almost as a key to unlock the meaning of the dream. So Mm. it seems like that should protect you somewhat.
1: uh, (laughs) Like some kind of cryptography. Yeah. yeah, that, that does uh, strike true. I think that is the case. huh? But, but but you know, it does seem like the psychologist is a necessary part because we're so willing to lead ourselves astray with the sort of like more rational but less true explanation of what we experience there. So it does mm-hmm. take a learned person. I, I can't help but wonder, and maybe we've talked about this already, but if ancient people didn't have these hang-ups and were able to interpret these dreams, like why is it that it's common to think that dreams are 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 sort of absurdities, hallucinations at night, not really too meaningful. Uh, maybe kind of interesting because you're involved, you're you're an actor in them. Um, yeah. Has that always been the case in culture? Did, did dreams? I, I sort of imagine that in more superstitious cultures, dreams would be given a lot more prevalence. I, I'm almost certain that that's the case. Yeah. So as society becomes more atheistic, uh, did those sorts of things become? less meaningful and now we need psychologists to to get at what we're trying to get at yeah that's that's my impression i mean i i think that the culture today is
0: extremely focused on rationality i would say too much assuming that dreams have some kind of meaning or even utility uh and and if we're ignoring them that's what i would blame it on it's like we're we're so focused on rationality and science and objectivity that um the idea that you could look at this dream and and do all this metaphorical reasoning. I mean, it's it's not it's not rational almost at all. I mean, reading Jung's words is fairly rational. He makes rational arguments, um, but it seems like the the process of interpreting a dream is not. It's I don't know if there's any rationality in there, um, or if there is, it's quite minor. It's mostly metaphorical or or intuitive thinking, and so maybe that process is just so. Um, I don't know, outside of the norm that, you know, when you grow up in this secular culture um, and you have dreams and you're told like, well, you know, dreams don't really mean anything or maybe not even told that, but just that's the implication. Um, that just seems normal. It's like, yeah, okay, well, as we all know, the world is uh, scientific and, and rational and sort of mechanistic. Um, at least that's certainly the Western viewpoint. and uh, And so then you would just You know, you would look at dreams and be like, "Well, that's just random. That doesn't really make any sense." So that's, I don't know. That's what I would, because I also, I also suspect that, um, yeah, in more superstitious times, um, dreams would be treated as, as fact, like Jung
1: says they should be, some sort of evidence. Hmm. Yeah, that's well, that's well. Yeah, that that is what I'm trying to uh, articulate. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm satisfied with leaving it there. I think we really. Did a good uh, short 45 minute. (laughs) That was supposed to be 20 minutes or something podcast. uh, Unless you have any lingering thoughts. I'm really satisfied with that. Nope, not really.
0: Um, I hope to have uh, a dream to share next time because I I definitely would like to share dreams every episode. That would be be a nice little um, addition to this. But at least we got yours. So the tradition has been kept alive for a full two episodes now. Yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied. All right, well, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. We're going to awkwardly, that'll be another tradition. We're just always going to awkwardly close it. Uh, So uh, 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 goodbye, I guess. Goodbye.
1: Bye. Uh, uh, Are you done? I'm done. I'm
0: not done. I mean, do you want to keep going? We could go for another two hours. do you have any thoughts? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I had a thought, but I forgot it. So let me think. Uh, Actually, let me try to think of it and remember it for about 20 seconds of silence. And then... um... (laughs) this is the best
1: podcasting (laughs) on this side all right let's let's (laughs) end it okay we're done for real yeah peace guys